Welcome to the Anifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my friend and colleague and official agitator. Uh, you would have most anything to do with buildings, really. Welcome, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello. Hello there. Right, so I'm excited today. I'll tell you why. I think we have a podcast first. This is the first person who's been on the podcast who has a picture of a plane with flames around it, an airplane with flames around it on their LinkedIn profile. So... Expectations are high for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our guest today is the philosopher's philosopher. He is an amazing gentleman, graduate of the Royal Roads Military College, which I've been out there. That's a fabulous campus. Royal Military College of Canada and the Canadian Forces School of Aerospace Technology and Engineering, where he earned his bachelor and master's degrees and served as an aerospace engineering officer in the Royal Canadian Air Force. Amongst his skill sets are explosive engineering and avionics engineering. That's always a nice combination. In between that, he earned a master in Divinity University of Emmanuel College and uh, being a lifelong learner, he's been continuing his schooling through Harvard Kennedy School and Simon Fraser University. And I don't know, Matthew, welcome to the show, Matthew Oliver. That's, that's quite the profile of education. We haven't even talked about your jobs yet. It's good to have you on. Uh, thanks, Robert. Thanks, Adam. It's a short attention span. <laughs> that's a, that's a, an excuse for it. Matthew, before and during and presently your studies, you served as repair and weapons officers, staff officer of avionics and armament, flight commander. You had like 14 test pilots under your management. Those guys are crazy. I know a test pilot in the U.S. Air Force for helicopters, not fixed wings. You were in forensics, both, I think, as a civilian and in the military, if I'm correct. And we met, I think, through our COVID activities, trying to get the Alberta School Board to pay attention to some pretty basic stuff. And that's when you were with the PEGA as the Deputy Registrar and Chief Regulatory Officer for the Association of Professional Infield Physicists of Alberta. Since then, you've moved on to the Alberta Utilities Commission. Is that right? I don't know anybody that we've had on our show, maybe perhaps Professor Olin Cliff from Oxford University who has such a grasp of ethics and morals and all the things that have gone into your brain. We have an audience that wants to hear your story. So how did you get here? Okay, you got five hours. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a boy from a small community in Manitoba called Selkirk. It's the catfish capital of the world. I'm sure you've all heard of it. <laughs> at one point my dad was the chair of the chamber of commerce and my uncle was the mayor so i said i just need to go back and be the chief of police we'll have the whole town stitched up <laughs> and that's selkirk's uh, right on the red river so on the red river valley so the red river figures prominently in my family and uh, we're metis as well so that's the the core of the metis homeland funny story because you know the metis we're sort of birthed in the Red River Settlement. So when we meet another Métis person, the first question you always ask in Indigenous communities is, where's your family from? Like, where's where's the land you're connected to? And I say Red River. And they're like, yeah, we know that. We're all from Red River, but where are you actually from? <laughs> no, no, from Red River. Literally, I grew up two miles from it. 
Yeah, so I joined the military at 17. Not quite the UN definition of child soldier, but I did have to get my parents to sign the enrollment forms and went off to uh, uh, Rhodes for a couple of years and then RMC and Kingston to finish up, which was no small amount of culture shock. I think it took me a decade after that to kind of get my uh, gyros realigned. It was an interesting experience. Uh, 20 years in the military, did lots of really cool stuff there. For a guy with a short attention span, it was a great job because basically, I think in, in 20 years, I did the last time I counted, 23 different jobs. But I spent most of it in the operational world. So I did six years on fighter squadrons, three in the junior positions, and then three years as chief engineering officer, 441 and 416, the two squadrons, neither of which exist anymore. And I had the chance to do four years at the Aerospace Engineering Test Establishment doing flight tests. Uh, and even that was kind of neat because I went there as an instrumentation electromagnetic compatibility engineer right after I did grad studies in uh, antenna design. And I got promoted after a year there. So I spent this, the second year working as an instrumentation engineer, but as a senior officer, which was great because I was the same rank as my boss. And then I moved over into that deputy and then flight commander position on the test side. So I had this small team, 14 flight test engineers, qualified test pilots, and specialist engineers. And I have to say that was probably the funnest job I have ever had. Minimum education level was basically a master's degree or test pilot school. I uh, really, really focused, really incredible test pilots and test engineers are incredibly bright people. I sat behind them, but doing flight test work and it just, I can't, it was such, such interesting work. And that's where the airplane on fire is with the last big project I did. There was, there's a big ethics component to this too, but there was a big issue with the ejection seats in the, the Tudor and the T-Bird, two older jet aircraft. They were killing pilots and we were the unit that was trying to agitate to get that fixed. The Air Force initially didn't want to fix it. That's the long story. We did win in the end and got a project, not a big project. It was like $1.5 million. I mean, it wasn't much money we were arguing for, but we overhauled the ejection seats to make their aerodynamics better and saved a bunch of lives because of that. But the picture on my LinkedIn page is one of the live test shots out of the back seat of one of those T-33 Silver Star aircraft testing the seat with an anthropomorphic test dummy in it, of course. We don't do live ejection testing anymore. Used that could to be one of my it, questions at some point. Used to in the early days. Uh, we visited wow. Patuxent River, the, the U.S. Navy flight test center there, and they still have the test fixtures. They used to fire people up on a inclined set of rails to test the effects of impulse G-loading on the human spine. And they would actually put test pilots in the rig and fire them up at different different explorations. Holy crap! Uh, yeah, so lots of interesting. And I was an air weapons officer, so that was my my explosives engineering specialty. I spent a bit of time teaching. I spent a couple of years in headquarters in Germany, closing out our bases at Laar and Baden uh, in there, which was uh, super amazing. When I was actually in my last squadron tour in Cold Lake, I had a motor vehicle accident. It was a pretty benign one, but I ended up trashing my lower back. So I ended up being medically released because I was no longer able to deploy to a place like Afghanistan. It was still doing my job, could do all the duties, but they had emphasized what they called universality of service at that point, which meant if you weren't able to deploy to a tent in the middle of the sandbox, uh, you weren't considered fit for duties anymore. And I had just been selected for promotion and going to staff college in Toronto, which is kind of like a military executive MBA. So yeah. I kind of said, you know, I didn't get in this job to sort of to sit in one place. And the rule was, if you didn't meet the universality of service, you went into one job, you were no longer eligible for promotion or career courses. And your commanding officer could decide on the annual basis whether they wanted to kick you out or not. So I said, 
which is when I went back to school, did a degree in divinity. I worked for a couple of years uh, full-time as a priest in the Anglican church, which led to some health issues because of, uh, of stress and the problems I was having with my back. So I ended up having to leave that and fortuitously stepped into a quasi-judicial tribunal job doing workers' compensation appeals. I had some legal stuff from the military because I was a summary trial president to do as part of the military discipline process. And I was qualified in military law to be an assisting officer to help people in court martials. But I didn't really have the experience they were looking for, but the guy hiring me was an aviation buff. So when he saw my resume, he really wanted to interview me. And I guess I got through the interview and I did that for nine years, three years part-time and then six years full-time hearing about injured workers and employers, which was really Interesting work with an interesting social justice component, too, because got to both deal with people that were abusing the system and people who had been chewed up by the system. So people that had lost their houses were living on the street because uh, they'd had their benefits cut off uh, when they actually had a really serious injury. Transitioned from there over to the engineering regulator, which is where you and I eventually connected, Robert, because when the pandemic started, I kind of stepped sideways into air quality advocacy both because the stuff I was seeing on social media from some members of the medical profession was making my head explode, but also because of the role of the regulator. I thought we had some specific role to talk about air quality and engineering obligations, and then left there last year to go and uh, do utilities regulation. So that's the, that's the story. I've got so many questions, but before we get on to some of the more serious stuff like you know, airborne pathogens, just going back to your early days, so I have a few regrets in my life, but one of the things I have a regret on is not doing some military service where I was tested, you know, where someone takes you in and the only bottom line they have is we can't kill this idiot, but otherwise they test you. Do you feel that was the making of you going into the military? Oh, yeah, man. I could talk about that for hours. Yeah, for sure. Although I can make a joke at this point for any, any Army person that's listening, they'll be laughing at an Air Force person saying they were tested. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the army guy asked the Air Force guy, what would you do if you were on deployment and there was something wrong with your tent? And the Air Force guy says, the first thing I do is call the, the concierge. And the army guy said, what? Yeah, to ask him why the hell there's a tent in my hotel room. That's right. Because it's true. Yeah, so, I, I mean, the, the re- enculturation that happens when you join the military kind of involves a necessary undoing of what you were before and then remaking yeah. it into the place that the organization can make the most use of you. So it is really this forced cultural shift through through runs and marches and push-ups. Still remember my basic platoon commander in basic telling me after we'd gotten like I think like 12 inoculations, every corner of your body you could possibly get a needle jammed into and the next day, we were all so sick with fevers. And he, infantry soldier, Captain Beardsley, said, Gents, the only thing that helps with sore arms from vaccinations is push-ups. Bryce is stuck a push through it, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, the military college system is, I mean, who I am today is directly traceable to that. So as much as I talk about the, you know, the, the things that I had to sort of work out afterwards, I can tell you an engineer story. So when we were looking at accreditation, the accreditation system with Engineers Canada, they have this thing called accreditation units, which is kind of the measure. It's one unit is a 15-minute lecture, I think is the way it works. Okay. But they use it to add up how much education a program gives to determine if it meets the minimum standards. 
And uh, there was a paper that had been written in the 90s, I think, that talked about, they did a survey of all the electrical engineering programs across Canada and added up how many of these units each one of them had. And the range was 1,700 to 2,800, which is a pretty big range in terms of volume of education. Yeah. And the number they settled on was 1,850 for a sort of standard four-year engineering program. So I'm reading this paper. I'm like, I wonder where the 2,800 program was. Royal Military College. Um, (laughs) And after I graduated, the University of Manitoba had a deal where if you were military, you could apply to them to get, they give you credits for military experience. So if you've done like staff school and professional development programs, they give you like three credits of arts for that. So I was curious how far I was away from a three-year BA. So I went and, and added up all the stuff I had and discovered that with all the extra courses I'd done in engineering, I was too six credit courses away from a three-year BA because I had had to do English, history, French, lots and lots of French, physical education, drill, all those additional things that were added into the program. So it was a really, really busy four years, time management by by forest fire, really. So the interesting part was every every other weekend, we had a military training weekend and we'd do a, a wing parade. So you'd spend all day Saturday on the parade square practicing. And then you do the parades Sunday morning and then Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon, you do military training of some kind, lectures or be out in the field. And I realized uh, when I started, after I hurt my back and started wrestling with chronic pain, that one of the coping strategies I had was that I had learned how to stand in the hot sun for three hours without moving. And that sort of physical discipline that I used, I mean, we all cursed it, of course, because nobody likes yeah. standing on the parade square in scarlet tunics, but... Yeah, so realized late, later in life as I was dealing with this medical issue that, oh, yeah, that's actually one of the reasons why we do that drill is because it teaches you mental and physical discipline that you wouldn't get otherwise. Yeah, and the idea is to make it unconscious action for you, right? Yeah. Now, the downside of it is, I, I mean, I don't think I actually learned as much technical stuff as I would have if I'd gone to uh, to Queens or somewhere because it's really, like in second year, I think I had 11... 10 exams in 11 days was my second year exam routine at Christmas. So it's really, I mean, it's literally like study until 3 a.m., sleep for three hours, get up, write the exam, take a nap, get up and study again and do that for uh, for 11 days. So it's hard to get into the mode of retaining uh, knowledge then. So for example, like transistors, right, which is pretty important electrical engineering stuff. I didn't actually figure out how transistors worked until maybe three or four years after I graduated. And then actually went back and read the stuff and said, oh, that's big work. It's so simple. I, I don't know why I missed it at the time. I heard the word Rhodes. So I, I know what a Rhodes Scholar is. Are you actually a Rhodes Scholar or is that? No, no, uh, Rhodes, Royal Rhodes, R-O-A-D-S, not with an H. Yeah. Right, okay, cool, no problem. All right, yeah, so... We refer, so we refer to Rhodes as Rhodes and the people who went to Rhodes as rodents. <laughs> and uh, RMC is RMC, but the people who go to RMC for four years are called purebreds. <laughs> in, in the lingua franca and we used to jokingly refer to ourselves who did two years at Rhodes and then two years at rmc because we were really neither part of neither community we used to call ourselves inbreds because we we'd been <laughs> there's always a group and an in group and an out group right <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's funny divinity what what was that about i mean of all the degrees i think i might study divinity i don't think will pop into my head yeah so there was a clear vocational call that was going on I was getting ready to leave the military. I mean, it didn't, I remember early on in my career, somebody telling me that you needed to put together like five and 10 year career plans to figure out where you're going to be. 
Mm. And I think my wife and I did it once and then I realized that nothing ever worked out that way anyway. So I stopped wasting time on it and just figured out where I was supposed to go next. So it seemed like the right place to go after the military. And I kind of assumed that I was going to be working in parish ministry for the rest of my working days. I mean, that didn't work out, but it, it turned out even better than I thought it would because I ended up doing this quasi-judicial stuff, which actually set the path for sort of the second half of my career, which was doing regulatory work and then doing utility regulation. Now, when I interviewed with a forensic firm, because they were looking for a contract electrical guy, the interview finished. I think he decided to hire me. And then as I was walking out of his office, he said, what divinity, what's that all about? And I, I said, we're a very secular profession, right? So I counted that lots. But I, I just said, you know, actually, when I reflect on it, reading theology made me a better engineer and being an engineer made me a better theologian because there's so many common touch points between engineering theology and actually law as well, I found, where it's, you know, the use of language, we have, they're just different approaches to how language is used. And we focus on that lots in engineering, right, with standards codes and standards, construction plans, project management plans, all the stuff we do, it's all based on technical reports, all based on the use of language to describe complex stuff. Moral code, ethics, integrity, all these things, they do overlap. It's a Venn diagram, right? Sound like Kamala Harris. It's a Venn diagram. So, <laughs> so my, the, the best way I, I understand, Matthew, after reading and listening to you for for the time that we worked on on the COVID stuff was you could take a hundred people and have them unroll a hundred foot electrical cord. And then 99 of them can't actually roll it up back the way it should be rolled. Matthew, you just drop the cord on the ground and it's already perfectly put away. <laughs> the, your, your ability to enter a dialogue, understand what is actually being said and not being said, and then putting the pieces together so that everybody can understand it with a solid argument is rare. And you've done that many, many times in the times that I've sort of observed you in action. That's a trait of an officer, right? Thanks for that, Robert. I don't, I, I spend most of my life thinking I'm an idiot. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's always nice to Story hear that in my affirmation. Life. <laughs> we were doing ejection seat testing and I was standing in front of my whiteboard one day when I was doing flight tests and I was trying to figure out, could we use, we had a jet engine test cell on the base for a J85, an older jet engine that's used on the T-38, to see if we could use a jet engine to do wind blast testing. Like, could we get 500 knots of jet exhaust? Uh -huh. So I was just trying to work out sort of first order, what would the temperature of the flow be at sufficient velocity? So I had this drawn up with a Venturi and, and I was trying to figure this out. And one of our test pilots wandered by, an American exchange guy whose call sign was Sulu, super, super guy. And he's standing behind me and he makes a comment about the diagram. And I turned to him and I, I heard his comment as, I don't think you know what you're doing. It's an issue with me, right? Not him, but that's the way I heard it. Yeah. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. I'm, I'm not an idiot. And he said, okay, and he turned and walked away. So two years later, we're at my uh, farewell, at military farewells, you know, people get up and tell st funny stories about you. And Sulu gets up and he says, let me tell you the story of the day he was doing this Venturi on his whiteboard. And he said, I'm not an idiot. And at that point I said, okay, I'm just gonna, I don't have anything to contribute here because I had no idea what he was doing. I had no concept of what he was doing. And I was just shocked because I thought, okay, you're a test pilot. He's got a master's degree in aerodynamics from uh, UTSI, Tennessee State really, really brilliant test pilot, a super nice guy. And I, you know, I'd assumed at the time that he was, he was being uh, critical of what I was doing, not that 
I was doing something that he couldn't get his head around because I thought what I was doing was really basic and simple. So just the story of how many times I uh, I don't appreciate sometimes my ability to synthesize because I always assume that I'm an idiot. That, that's a good story <laughs> because yeah. you can change your life and your outlook on life just by assuming the best and not the worst of what's happening around you, right? Yes. You know, you assumed it was an attack. He had no, he wasn't even on that wavelength with you. And you sort of like missed each other, right? It's such a good story about, you know, if someone comes at you, you think, oh, that don't seem right. But you can always assume, oh, maybe it was a different, it was, wasn't was malintent, right? You can be the first one to give the benefit of the doubt, can actually change a lot in your relationships, I think. I agree fully. And for, you know, an aerospace engineer in the fighter world, I think we always, as engineers, are wrestling with the idea of being second string players to the fighter pilots who are, are very often larger than life. Well, that, and, that are glory boys, right? Da, da, da. Yeah. And very, very, especially in the test pilot world, very, very incredibly skilled people. But um, I was reacting a bit out of that. Here's a test pilot. And I'm, I'm hearing that as a criticism, not as a head. It was insecurity, help. right? Uh, exactly. What I'm thinking of, we're going to have a conversation about how you guys got together during the, the COVID thing and how you sort of try to speak to the school board. But hearing your story now in more detail, it really makes sense, like the engineering background, the divinity, but we're talking about like core values, ethics, you know, this all play into it. As you say, it touched on law, yeah. touched on engineering. These things all come together. So it was sort of almost like a complete convergence of your skill set and background come into play at this point, right? So let's tell us a quick story about how you guys got together and the mission you were on. There was a number of us that were like observing the insanity. Here we are, we're faced with all of this evidence that this is a pathogen that was in the air. And, you know, at the time it was kids don't transmit. It's not going to happen in schools. Pathogens just aren't that smart. Like they don't know the difference between an 80-year-old and an eight-month-old, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and and at the same time, they were talking about, you know, three meter distances and, and 15 minutes. And I'm thinking to myself, like, they don't, pathogens don't carry GPS. They don't know time. They don't know distance. They don't know age. All we know, it's in the air and you can look around you and Mother Nature tells you how particles get distributed. You don't need to have a degree in whatever. You just watch Mother Nature and she'll tell you how things move around the space. So there was a group of us who just couldn't believe what we were seeing that was coming out. And Matthew, I think it was in Twitter, you showed up and started participating. And I, did, I personally didn't realize at first that you were with Apega. I just was reading some of your stuff. So just for our international Apega is the Engineering Licensing Board and Authority in Alberta, Canada. So it's responsible for licensing professional engineers. Sorry about that, Kevin. So... We were working to try to educate not only the school board, but people in general, medical professionals, engineers too as well. I mean, there was no profession that we weren't interested in trying to educate them on, at least share what we knew about physics and chemistry. I, Everybody seemed to take, went to the same schools, how, how they don't understand that, and we did. I, it's so bizarre. But anyways, long story short, ASHRAE, the American Society of Heat and Refrigeration Air Conditioning Engineers, Bill Bonfliff was the chair of the task force that later went on to write the new standard, which is 241. But their group of individuals wrote protocols and tried to to use ASHRAE and ASHRAE members as a means of 
elevating the knowledge about what we need to do with particles and spaces and, and the buildings it occupied. And so we had in Alberta, Matthew, I think I first contacted you to actually chair. You were the guest. Introducer. I, yeah, you introduced Bill. And I remember your introduction and you mentioned ethics, ethics and engineering and ethics in society about our responsibilities to do the right thing with the knowledge that we have. And for, you know, for those that are listening, the students that are listening to this podcast and you start to practice as an engineer, you can't ignore your ethics. You have an obligation to society. And here we were in a mix of professionals from the medical world that also had an ethical obligation and they were to their best of their knowledge trying to fulfill theirs as engineers we were trying to fulfill our obligations and oftentimes there was conflict and the school boards i don't even know do they, i don't even think they have an ethical obligation as teachers do they i do they i don't even know if they do i mean engineers do lawyers do physicians do just do educators uh, teachers do, but the facilities people, like the support staff and administrators, I think, fall under different regimes. So there is no professional body for facilities people except for the engineering regulator. And the administrators, I don't think, are licensed by ATA the same way the teachers are. So the teachers have a clear ethical code of behavior. Actually, just to expand on that a little bit, let's think about this, right? So engineers, teachers, medical professionals, it's like a Hippocratic oath if you're a medical person, right? Do no harm. But there's also a regulatory board, right? Your engineering license, your medical license, your teaching qualification is always at stake based on your performance, right? And you've got to do something pretty heinous to get rid of it. But ethics is rolled in that. But if you're a school board, you're not under that level of, what's the word? Professional duty of care, right? So I think that was one of the disconnects here, right? You have a school board, which is pretty powerful political entity in itself. Then you've got teachers, engineers, medical people, political people, all fighting it out with their point of view, right? Which I think is one of the reasons this whole thing went a bit off off the rails. Would you agree with that? I do, yeah. And we're also, we were just chatting about this yesterday on Twitter. We're also in this era, right? What was Oxford's word of the year? Was it 2020, 20, post-truth or 2021? That's it, yeah, um, I think, yeah, I remember that, 2020, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, so we've got this cultural milieu that's in this phase known as post-modernity, and I'm not an expert in post-modernity, but one of the things post-modernity brings is a reaction to modernity, which is considered to be the scientific rationalist framing, you know, where we look to facts and scientific evidence. So post-modernity reacts to that and says basically that all truth is suspect, because truth is ultimately just shaped in the way that people who have power want to control others. And, you know, there's certainly, when I hear that, I think, well, yeah, I can actually, I can point to places where, you know, spin doctor, right? Putting yeah. a spin on something is exactly what post-modernity is talking about. That yes. we're going to talk about COVID being mild because that's the message we need to spin, whether it's based in reality or not is another thing. But I used to do regular ethics lectures for engineering students. And one of the things I always laughed at is I would, I had a couple slides about post-modernity because I thought you need to know this because you don't hear it in the program that you're going out into a world that is actually fundamentally irrational in many ways. You know, this, you do, you, I, I've done my own risk assessment, even though I know nothing about risk assessments. Every time I would talk about post-modernity engineering classes, I would see all the students doing this. Here's the alt text, shaking their heads and looking confused and perplexed. <laughs> 
And I realized that uh, people in technical professions have were vaccinated against postmodernity because it's it's ludicrous, right? Like, yeah, when you're you, trained in science and engineering, postmodernity is BS, right? Yeah, especially in our field of practice. Like, what, yeah. you're going to tell me that the factors of safety are, are my truth, not your truth? You're going to do something different? Like, Tell that so, to jumping out of the airplane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, part of it, at least, and it'd be interesting to read what the sociologists write about this over the next decade, because this is really, yeah. it's really societal behavior stuff that I, I'm not, I don't know that much about. But it's one of the things that's created this complete weirdness that we're in right now is this influence post-modernity, which most people don't even realize. They, they'll say, I've done my own risk assessment. What they really mean is I've decided I feel comfortable with this. I have no idea what the actual risks are, but I feel comfortable eating indoors at a restaurant that's packed full of people or going to a bar at night with my friends. And I feel comfortable with that is what they really mean when they say I've done my own risk assessment. Whereas somebody that's actually done a risk assessment as we would understand it, even a qualitative one, which is supposed to be dispassionate and heartless and pull out all the risks and analyze them six ways and figure out if you can mitigate them and then what residual risk do you have left. That's not what people talk about. But because we're in this postmodern era, people will say that. And then when you challenge them, they'll say, well, what, why are you challenging me? I've done my own risk assessment. I've satisfied myself. You have no business telling me whether I'm right or wrong. Now, this is interesting because yeah. this, this whole issue also sort of goes into like personal sovereignty and autonomy and that overlap with government requirements sometimes to be authoritarian, right? So this post-modernity thing, when you hear people say, oh, the science is settled or we own the science, that's another sort of manifestation of that. Then. Would you agree? Yeah, actually, I think I haven't thought about that before, but I think, I think you're right because what they're actually saying is that we have chosen to believe the science is settled. Yeah. And that's our truth. My daughter's a chemist, and uh, I remember when she was in school, we would have huge debates about climate change, good-natured debates, just testing the evidence and challenging each other on our thoughts. And I remember more than once saying, somebody would say, the science is settled on it. And I'd be like, well, then it's not science, is it? Right? <laughs> if it's like that, <laughs> it's when like I saying, science is settled, it drives me insane. Yeah. It's like it's like saying the science of concrete is settled. Like we settled yeah. that in eighteen twenty two, and it's never changed since. Like it's ludicrous to say. You know science, what it is? The That's the same as saying history is over. The Berlin Wall's down. History is over. Yeah. Bullshit. Right. Anyway, yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say that because when I hear like we own the science, I am the science. The science is settled. I'm thinking no. But unless you've got an engineering or science background, you, it doesn't sound ludicrous. I guess. No, especially if you've bought into that, uh, into the whole postmodern thing. Although I will say that there, I mean, one of the great things that's come out of the pandemic for me is intersecting with a whole bunch of people like the two of you, you know, the air advocacy group in Calgary, an amazing group of people, some of whom are better than some of the engineers I've worked with on the technical stuff. I won't name any names, but I'm thinking one person in particular who's got a fine arts background who is, you know, amazing on the technical side. And yeah. I have actually no problem considering her like part of my uh, engineering college of people who bring technical expertise because it, you know, it comes down to critical thinking and your ability to process information and learn. And if you're willing to do that, then you can. Absolutely. Which is, you know, the, the message for students is, the other thing I always say to engineering students is your role as an engineer is to be the interpreter of a complex reality. So many times an accident, commissions and inquiries and investigation reports I've read, there has been somebody or some organization that has had the ability to intervene and break the chain of causation. But almost invariably, it's because somebody has decided they can't speak up 
or somebody has overruled them. And, you know, one of the things as technical professionals, because of our public welfare obligations, is that we always have that obligation to speak up. It's the reason I started opening my mouth up about air stuff in 2020, because I could see the failure modes starting to develop in public health and infectious disease rhetoric that were the same sort of failure modes that, you know, brought Challenger down. The exact same sort of stuff going on, which is why I stepped into an area which I don't practice in at all to say, you know, there's there's cognitive issues with what is being discussed here. This is not yeah. correct. The plexiglass barriers, right? Which when I saw those plexiglass barriers being recommended by public health, I just, I'd appeal myself off the ceiling because I'm like, anybody <laughs> who's done a first year fluids course or basic yep. fluids course yeah. knows what happens to flow when it goes over the top of a solid barrier and you get a back eddy. I'm like, my gracious, like, yeah. You're going to diss respirators because you don't have randomized controlled trials to prove they work, but you're going to stick plexiglass barriers everywhere with no evidence whatsoever. <laughs> Holy crap. Like, so that was yeah. straight up pandering to populism, right? What's interesting to me is, so you inject yourself into this, right? Because it's starting to drive you crazy. And you're probably not alone in that. I've had several people in that situation. But once you injected yourself in, because, you know, at some point the stupidity starts to hurt your brain, right? How much pushback did you get? Did you get pushback from friends or colleagues? Did you find it was worse than you thought when you went and sort of started going deeper into this rabbit hole? You know, it's interesting. I Some people, I commented on a evolutionary biologist post who's out in uh, Ontario the other day. And it, it's actually the first time in three years I've gotten any sort of trolling on something I've said. That's when you know you're on target, mate, when they fire back at you. So I, I very, very little pushback. I mean, there was maybe a little of work about, because uh, regulators are always dealing with the challenge of not being politically active, trying to be independent, but trying to protect the public at the same time. So there's a little bit of pushback at work about being out there. But it's one of the reasons why my Twitter account is personal and not associated with my work yeah. persona at all, because I keep those separate. So no, it's surprisingly little pushback. Oh, except, <laughs> sorry, except, of course, from the people that I was uh, critiquing. And I take great pride in one of the ID docs in Alberta, put a post up that I think was specifically about me that said, I wish engineers would stop trying to tell us what to do the in terms of PPBE with outbreaks yeah. in hospitals. That was one of the best. I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad I had uh, ringside seats for that exchange because for our listeners, Matthew in his career, PPE was, I mean, you had to be on top of that all the time with, with this, the things that you were dealing with and whether it was chemicals or fire related. Mm. I mean, your, your knowledge of PPE is well above that other individual's pay grade. And here she was challenging you. And I just. <laughs> and it's applied knowledge as well. Let's not forget. It's not. Bravo, bravo. <laughs> it was. It was good. I don't know. Did she even did she even continue that dialogue after you explained to her? No, I'd actually blocked her in 2020 because I was getting I found I was getting furious every time I'd read one of her posts. So she yeah. probably doesn't even know that I replied to it. But I, you know, I mean, the first thing that drew me in was uh, talking Adam about the applied side is that I was trained in we called it NBCD in the in the day at CBRN now Nuclear Biological Chemical Defense. Right. And because we were training as a NATO deployment unit, we had to meet the NATO standards for, it was called STOW in the day, survival to operate, which meant that you could continue to operate a, a fighter aircraft operation and be able to prosecute targets on an airfield that had been slimed, you know, with either 
chemical agent like sarin, nerve gas, or a biological agent, or a cloud of uh, fallout. And when we do tactical evaluations in NATO, we'd actually assess people on their ability to do this. So we do a five-day, you know, it would start with DEFCON 5, and then by day two, you'd be at DEFCON 2 and DEFCON 1 on Wednesday, which was limited nuclear exchange, and everybody would be in masks and poopy suits, NBCD charcoal suits. With Please NBCD. tell me you all called that DEFCON 1 Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> in the mess hall. <laughs> Sorry. So when I started seeing, you know, medical people posting that there's no proof that respirators work, I'm like, what, what planet are you from? Like I, uh, I know. And part of it was, you know, my annual certification involved me putting on one of those chemical isolation suits and a full face butyl rubber respirator and going into a chamber full of tear gas and practicing my decontamination drills. So actually taking the hood off and the mask off. And uh, holding my breath and using a, in the early days, it was a diatonomous earth in a cloth baggie you'd put over your hand and then you'd have to pat and rub to get the chemical agents off. And then uh, Canada developed this stuff called RSDL, reactive skin decontamination lotion. It's used all over the world now. It's like uh, olive oil on a sponge that deactivates every known chemical and, and biological agent as well, it turns out. But so you'd wipe yourself down with olive oil and then put your mask on and do your clearance drills. And if you failed in any of them, you'd end up with a, a snoot full of tear gas, which leaves a lasting memory. So that applied aspect, like when people started saying respirators didn't work, I'm like, I trust, I've trusted my life to respirators multiple times with, with no concern whatsoever about it because that's the way you survived. And, you know, and the procedures we used had actually been verified by the military and live live agent trials. Like it wasn't, I don't think they do that anymore, but there were days where you would regularly expose troops to mustard gas, for example, just to help them develop confidence in their equipment. So stuff that's survived the test of time. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you struggling with paperwork, spreadsheet overload, and project management? Then Blue Rhythm is the solution to help you. Streamline your commissioning and project management process. Go paperless increase efficiency, and save money. Blue Rhythm is commissioning and project management software by practitioners for practitioners, adapting to your workflows and processes, and doing things your way. Blue Rhythm provides painless and fast onboarding by bringing your existing workflows, forms, checklists, and issues logs into Blue Rhythm for you. You can use their pre-built templates to customize your commissioning workflows and Blue Rhythm can fully handle the transition from your current software platform. Blue Rhythm is secure, scalable, and reliable, backed by amazing support, and accessible 24-7 on any Windows, iOS, or Android device. Why are you still using paper and hard-to-control spreadsheets? Start your free Blue Rhythm account today at bluerhythm.com. And now, back to the show. Yeah, so what we're talking about here, so this is one of my... Criticisms of pure academics. My question to them is, where's your applied experience, your applied knowledge, right? You're, you're talking about applied knowledge and takeaways from a high-consequence example, right? There's nothing more high-consequence than DEFCON 1, 2, 3, 4, right? You know what I mean? So it's not, it's not nothing. And this is where this whole – there was a lot of righteous academics, I found, right? You know, I'm blah, 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 PhD, therefore yep. – I am right, was basically the presupposition for everything they typed and wrote, I thought. Did you see it that way? Did you experience that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's always the first red flag, right? When somebody makes an overt claim of authority. 
Yes. And contrasted very nicely by some academics who were extremely gracious and welcoming, mm. like, again, uh, no Bill. names, but, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I ended up being involved with the drafting of that article in the British Medical Journal with academics from uh, University of Toronto and from Oxford, who I never would have encountered in my life if it wasn't yeah. for being a loud mouth on Twitter about air advocacy. But And I had a conversation with uh, the chap from the U of T who said, I said, you know, thank you very much. I'm just, I'm actually just a dumb engineer. Like, you guys are all much more in on the technical side of this than I am. And he said, no, no, you have a really important perspective to bring that we don't have. Yes, and like, mm -hmm. the, which is interdisciplinary work, right? Which is yeah. also a cornerstone of engineering, which is something else that's been a huge failure in the pandemic. That inter interdisciplinary work. Again, that's something you highlighted, Robert, right? Yeah, I mean, the opposite of integration is segregation. And segregation has, <laughs> in these circumstances where it's life and death, it's important to have people with interdisciplinary knowledge and skills come together. You know, it's not like this is a, that we needed a Navy SEAL team, but we did, you know, in terms of dealing with this. And we didn't. We had individuals who were very much self-proclaimed, worked within a world of segregation, didn't understand what integration meant. And ultimately, as a society, and I, I've posted this many, many times, that in a life and death situation, those in charge of minimum controls, should they be, in, in fact, in charge? And being in charge of minimum requirements and minimum standards works when there's not a life and death situation. But in a life and death situation, the people in charge of minimums, they are the wrong people. We have the wrong people in charge of in, in the pandemic. I was going to say it was really clear in, I think, at Royal Melbourne Hospital. It was in late 2020. So this was such a beautiful example of people who are grounded in reality and processing data. They noticed that their nursing staff who were unmasked at the nursing station were having a high degree of COVID infection. So the hospital people said, we got to figure out what's going on here because we don't understand where these nurses are getting infected from. So they're like, we need somebody who understands how air flows in buildings. So of course they called their neighborhood infection control department. No, they contacted the local engineering faculty and said, we think we've got airflow issues in our building. Can you come and work with us? So they brought the engineering faculty came in with their theatrical smoke generators and all the other equipment that the ventilation engineers use. And they discovered that because the HVAC system probably had never been balanced in recent history, that the design flow, which is nursing station into patient rooms and then exhaust, right, had reversed. And it was actually flowing from the patient rooms out into the hallway to the nursing station. And guess what? They got in there, HVAC people, they rebalanced the system, they got it flowing the right way, and the transmission dropped off. Now, that's, for me, was when I read that, I'm like, that is the epitome of interdisciplinary work. We don't know yeah. how this works. We need to call in the experts. Yeah. Call in the experts. You work together as a team and you contribute, which is right. And it was the other reason why I started getting really frustrated in 2020, because for engineers, it's like, this is our default mold of working because we, it's almost never you are the only engineer on a project because our scope of expertise is so narrow now that uh, like on a yeah. building project, right? You're going to be one of dozens oh, of different disciplines yeah. working together, including yeah. architects and maybe yeah. uh, agrologists, if you're dealing with the land around it and geotechnical people, maybe geoscientists as well. Like you're always working on these teams where you don't understand everything. So you get everybody sitting around the table together, the collective community understands it. I want to talk about lessons learned, but just to quickly talk about the politics, because for me, sort of from the outside looking in, 
I had made a conscious decision not to jump on Twitter and get involved because my head would freaking explode. But it was really amusing watching you, Robert. So thank you for that TV show for the last two years. <laughs> but what you had was like academics, applied engineers, teachers, school boards, and politics all colliding, right? No one backing down. Everyone, I'm right. No, I'm right. And do you think it was just literally a political shit show? And if the politics hadn't been there, we would have had a different approach? I'm not sure I would pin politics as the issue. I think what has become really clear to me, at least, is that the cycles of dysfunction that are driving a lot of the stuff going on with the pandemic come back to fundamental issues about power and control. And some of that is certainly in political groups, but the epitome of this is the Ontario uh, Nurses Union going to court to get the right to wear respirators in the workplace. Like, what? (laughs) It's in in the occupational health and safety legislation, for gracious sake. So they go to court, and what do they get? But a whole litany of infectious disease doctors who sign declarations that COVID is entirely transmitted by droplets and respirators don't work, even though it's wrong with droplets, of course. But so... One of the things that became apparent to me through talking through some really smart people, especially people who had been involved in the SARS-1 commission afterwards, was that the, the patterns of control and power, concern about power, were driving most of the discussions that were causing harm. Because because I've done this a number of times in my career, and it's it's cost me big. The, uh, the ejection seat story, yeah. um, I burned basically every bridge I had with uh, Air Division headquarters. In the end, it became clear to me that all of the mid-level staff officers had not been telling the commander the truth about the ejection seat problem. Oh. So on the last day of our meeting, he basically said, if I had known this a year ago, I would have acted immediately. So that was a whole class of people that I, I would, would have worked with if I'd stayed in the military. That yeah. uh, My name was mud to them. But, you know, the issue is, for especially for professionals who know, and this is what motivated me to start beacon off on Twitter, was the fact that I'm like, I have knowledge, specific knowledge that is relevant to the situation. And I actually have a professional and a legal obligation to intervene in some of these conversations where I see people going off the rails factually, because my profession demands that I intervene. Now, that power and control dynamic, right? The reason it successfully exists is because there are are not enough people who are willing to say, I'm going to intervene and place my career at risk. To, uh, to stop this process. There's a cowardice issue, ultimately. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And it's yeah. and you see it, like if you look at Challenger, the great example is Alan McDonald, who was the, uh, I remember his job title, he was the most senior engineer on the solid rocket booster side at Morton Thiokol. And he was the one that said, I refuse to sign the launch authorization for Challenger. So he and his team and the other engineers that were in that area, they all knew that there was a serious failure mode that they thought, they actually thought it was going to blow up on the pad. And McDonald writes that when it, when it made it 30 seconds in the air, he thought, oof, we dodged that bullet. Of course, it was like 56 seconds it actually blew up. But so he refused to sign the launch authorization. Like that is, that's courageous. Yeah, that's career-ending courage, right? His boss, who was the VP, after being told by one of the other senior guys, take off your engineering hat and put on your management hat signed the launch authorization. And now I use that in every one of my ethics briefings because there's a slide with that guy's name signed at the bottom of it saying he, he recommends the launch. Now, so the interesting part of that for me is, and then now it didn't start stop there with Alan McDonald. So the commission of inquiry is being held, right? Which includes Richard Feynman. Like it's a really high powered right. panel. 
first public hearing day, Alan McDonald's in the audience. When they finish the day, he walks up to the front and says to the commission members, this is my name, this is where I work. I have information you need to hear. Because up until that point, Morton Thiokol had kind of been spinning the, the response and saying, oh, it was an unexpected failure. We had no anticipation. You know, the usual sort of stuff you would hear from. Yeah, from, running uh, interference, basically, right? Yeah, and Alan McDonald went up and said, that's all wrong. We knew exactly what was going to happen. And in fact, I refused to sign the launch authorization. And the, the commission went, whoa, we've heard none of this from the people speaking to us from Morton Thiokol. We need to talk to you. So they drew him in, changed the direction of the inquiry. And they specifically wrote in their report, there had better be no job action against him or we will be coming for you. I'm paraphrasing, but, you know. Yeah, in, with, in nicer legal speak, but basically that, right? Because what they did with him is they shuffled him off into a job to say, you need to figure out how to manufacture the next generation of solid rocket boosters. And he, he says in his book at that point, he knew he was on his way out. And then after the commission report came out, they reappointed him into his old job, which he worked until the end of his career. And then he said, one day I was in the attic and found my big box of notes, right? Whistleblowers always keep notes, keep receipts. He had his big box of notes from, from Challenger. And he said, I need to write a book about it. And wrote this wonderful book, Truth, Lies, and O-Rings, which is an engineer's dream because it's that all the truth, truth lies, and O-Rings. Yeah. It's all the technical details about Challenger solid rocket boosters you never knew that you needed to know. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. So wasn't it Richard Feynman who made the analysis that discovered the O-ring was a problem? Yeah, yeah, and did his famous uh, with a sea clamp and a glass of ice water on the table at the press conference. He's my hero now, dude. He's great. Yeah, and his great line, which I've tweeted more than once, Mother Nature will not be fooled, but it's the beginning of it is something like, perceptions must give way to reality because Mother Nature will not be fooled. I'll look it up. Something like yeah. that, yeah. He's got so many great quotes. That guy is like, uh, if you crossed a comedian with a pickpocket, and a housebreaker and an academic and a scientist, you get Richard Feynman, basically. That's <laughs> yeah, a shame his whole life wasn't wasn't as laudatory, but yeah, he's an, an amazing guy for sure. He he would he the, must have been the best teacher ever. If you had him as your teacher, that's gonna be the luckiest day of your life, I reckon. For a successful technology, reality must take precedence over public relations for nature cannot be fooled. Yeah. Mother yeah. Doesn't that epitomize the pandemic? Like, isn't that it? God, what would he make of all the bullshit on the pandemic, eh? I mean, all you had to do was look around. I mean, you just observe Mother Nature, and she's the teacher, you know? We have kids listening, you know, students and kids. I mean, young adults that are in university or college right now, you know, listening to the podcast. And you will, some of you will be faced in your careers where you have to make some hard decisions. And Adam, we've talked about this before, my own experience, you know, where I had three choices that were given to me by a representative of a large corporation that had acquired my business. One of them was to continue communicating with an individual that I found completely offensive and I was done. I did not want to have another word with him. I didn't return his calls. I didn't return his registered letters, nothing. I did. I just was done with him. He was so offensive. The other option I had was to change my principles in order for me to stay. And the other one was to quit. And I had to tell this individual that there is no way that I will ever communicate with this individual again. My principles are not negotiable and I have never quit anything in my life. So I guess the ball's in your court. So I was fired for insubordination. Now that, that to me sounds like they stood you to attention, ripped your epaulets off, broke your sword, <laughs> out you go, right? <laughs> insubordination. I love that. 
Subsequent to that, we bought the business back two years later because they drove it into the ground. <laughs> when? <laughs> and then read, right? So when you get out of school and you start to practice and you find yourself in positions where you're, you have to stand on your principles. You, those are things that are inherent. That's who you are. Those are your character traits. And they should never be negotiable, ever. And you'll be faced with that when it comes for, well, and I remember like when we were working on a project where there was, this was a professional engineer who instructed our team that in the event that we win the contract, that a certain percentage of that contract fee would be mailed to him, to his personal residence. And when that was brought to my attention, I said, pull it. We're not, we're done. We're not bidding on the project. So you have to, you'll be faced with those decisions. Those are real world things. And you have to be able to say, no, these are non-negotiable. Because once you do that, then you will be that forever. Everybody will know you. That's the kind of individual you are. And that's just not something you want on your resume. Ethics, personal core values and personal ethics. You can't control the ethics and core values of people around you or the institutions you work for. But you have 100% control over your own personal. Absolutely. And that's what sorts the men from the boys, right? Can you make that say it's all great to... When everything's going great, everything's great, right? You go along, but when that time comes, but that guy at that launch, how big were his balls, right? To say, no, I am not signing off on that launch. Talk about high consequence. My goodness, doesn't get any bigger than that. Knowing what we know now, we've had this like two, three-year COVID journey. We've seen every form of fuckery that there is to have, right? Excuse my French there. But I'll put this to you, Matthew. What's the one... Or two things that you would do differently, knowing what you know now? What would you have changed? Yeah, I think I read an analysis by, I think it was a sociologist. This was a couple of years ago, so I can't remember who it was. But And they basically made the point that uh, people will often grasp and remember in crises when they're challenged, people will grasp and remember the first thing they're told. So if we could go back and change any one thing in the pandemic back in those days of of March 2020, it would have been to start the message about respiratory protection and specifically certified respirators right from the get-go. Because that's something that could, I mean, the national stockpile, it was all time expired, but the national stockpile had millions of respirators that still could have easily been used as an interim measure until until manufacturing could could have been spooled up. That would have been the lowest cost and least imposing mitigation that could have been brought in from day one. And it arguably, like globally, it would have saved tens of millions of lives if we had been able to do that. And then part two of that would have been to, as the information was being gathered by the specialists in those areas, would have been to start to look at, at doing both short-term and medium-term fixes to ventilation. Because I, I remain convinced that the key to... I guess as ASHRAE does, who are the actual experts, but the, you know, the key to mitigating transmission of respiratory pathogens is to make sure the ventilation systems are up to snuff. I mean, it's not going to give you 100%, which is another interesting side discussion that came up recently about, you know, there's a there's a group of people that are sort of a, the zero tolerance for unmasking, but there were a few of us trying to make the point that in engineered systems, you never achieve zero risk. It's it's a question of balancing cost and limitations with the amount of risk that you're willing to accept. And if we looked at our ventilation systems, we could achieve very low uh, transmission, even if people weren't doing any other mitigations. And just as a footnote onto that, I, I'd be interested in hearing if you notice the same thing. One of the things I've noticed as I walk around with my uh, CO2 monitor is that 
the level of ventilation in like class A office buildings or the higher priced conference centers is actually really impressive. I was at a conference in Banff a couple months ago and like 600 people in the conference facility and I could see that they were actually, the system was moderating based off CO2 because I could see it would bump up to 700. Yeah, and two ventilation control, yeah, perfect. Yeah, so like 700 ppm in a room full of 600 people is pretty freaking impressive. Um, yeah, absolutely it is. Uh, yeah. and, I, and I would guess if I had been there 10 years ago, I wouldn't, because we all know what those conference facilities were like, right? You'd sit yeah. there and by, by lunchtime, the room would be hot and sweaty and everybody would that. be falling asleep. Yeah. So I, I suspect a bunch of that's been done on the down low in the background, but it's only for, I haven't sampled like class B and class C office buildings, but it's only in the ones charging the, the highest degree of rent. It's the ones in the middle and the, and the retail spaces that probably didn't have good ventilation to start yeah, with. 80% well, of people reside, but this goes to power and control, right? So yeah. we're all through it. Everyone's going, oh, shoof. And I, I think, and I'm worried that it's going to fade into memory. And we're just going to go back to doing what we've always done, right? So I'd love to see a real impetus on updating codes and for ventilation in buildings, particularly schools, right? More uh, fresh air, more DOAS, you know, things like that. Any Anything more than we're doing now would be, okay, better filtration standards. But I have a horrible feeling it's such a lot of work to get a change in building code or standard that it's just going to become difficult and it's going to fade away. What do you think about that, Robert? You're, you're involved in codes. Yeah, I mean, I've always said that, you know, minimums become maximums. Yeah. In a free market system, minimums become maximums. So if you want to change, if you want a higher level of performance, then you have to change the minimum. Right, yeah. Because no one will step up, or not no one, but very few people will step up to maximum. And I've not seen that deviate in my entire career. People always will work with the minimums. It's one of the things I saw constantly when I was doing forensic work for law firms. You know, one of the questions you'd often get asked is, is this a code compliant installation? And most of the time the answer is, yeah, it's code compliant. And then the lawyer would say, but then how did the fire start? Like, well, code doesn't guarantee safety. And they would be like, what? Like, yeah. well, no, it did, codes, codes and standards don't guarantee safety. They're minimum design standards that are imposed because they're convenient and cost effective. But there's stuff in codes that will kill you if you don't know what you're doing, right? I mean, anybody right. that's done design work knows that. Yeah, people have a complete misunderstanding of what codes are all about, and it is about reducing risk, not guaranteeing safety. And the, you know, and even in terms of environmental systems, which is sort of my shtick, you know, there's nothing in the codes that say we have to build comfortable buildings. We have to build buildings so that people don't become sick in them. But being sick and being comfortable are not the same thing. And that applies to lighting, it applies to air, it applies to fire, all of this. It, people, it's, it's amazing that people don't understand that. But It's part of the social contract, right? It's where governments say to people, I've got your back. You know, there are these things we're doing to keep you safe. And codes came from public health, right, originally. And I don't think they've actually evolved that much from it, right? Well, fire was the big sort of the leading reasons for codes yeah. to prevent fires. But but there's a relationship between government and those that write codes. Yeah. So the mandates are oftentimes, well, they are, they're dictated from, from government. Like the people that actually write them are getting their directions from the government. And so for us to change the minimum requirements requires 
political forces. Well, it requires a voice of the people. Is really what it comes. We've talked about this before, Adam. That you know, if you want to see change, people have to get involved. Yeah. So government needs to get a signal from people in aggregate that they need to change. In, they in aggregate, that down right to the code writers. So that and would even be like a civil disobedience on sending people to school would be the only way you'd probably get that, right? Yeah, and the thing, and you said something, and that's in, in aggregate. Like there has to be an, a sufficient mass of people yeah. with the same voice to cause change because, you know, we've seen Canadians for Properly Built Homes. I uh, used to be involved with that, and, and I occasionally do, if, if Karen, Dr. Karen Somerville asked me for my opinion, I will obviously give it to her, but you know, she has worked for decades on behalf of Canadians that have ended up with lemons for no money. It's a purely volunteer organization. And she, you know, has struggled. She's always there whenever there's an opportunity to change the laws and, and influence politicians. She's always there. But to get changes of consequence has been her life struggle. Yeah. Because Political forces will listen, but they won't act. And they won't act because there's not enough people willing to stand up. Again, it goes back to what you're saying, Matthew. People that don't say what they're – they're obligated to say something. As a member of society, if you have any ethics and morals and want to see a better world, it's not going to happen by not saying nothing. You have to say something. We have an opportunity to do that when we vote, but that's not sufficient enough. We've never seen it. can only come from disobedience. It can't have violence because violence gets dealt with, right? It has to be yeah. disobedience. Gandhi was onto something, right? He defeated the most powerful empire in the world by civil disobedience. There's something going on there, right? You know, yeah. if, if enough parents said, you know what? This isn't safe. I'm not sending my kids to school. That would be something that would move a needle, at least make a news show, which would, you know, that's another pop. Anyway, we're getting into big things here, but you know, <laughs> I'm not I'm not advocating for civil disobedience. Don't cancel me, right? <laughs> Too old uh, to be cancelled. There is another model too, which is the Ralph Nader, right? If you can get somebody yes. who's able to galvanize a social movement, you know, yes. looking at uh, automobile safety. I don't know his story yeah. that well, but I think didn't he have a family member who was killed in a yes? So he's a Lebanese American, and he's the reason there are seatbelts in cars. And they have never forgiven him. The Democratic Party, he is a, do you know he's a political outcast in the US for his work on that? And then he, he ran for Democratic office afterwards and they just, the whole Democratic machine turned against him. He is like persona non grata. He's yeah. like the Democratic version of Ross Perot. So his thanks for making everybody safe and probably saving thousands of lives is political ostracization. So no good deed goes unpunished, I guess, right? Yeah, Ashray faced the same thing when when the cigarette uh, lobbies, the tobacco groups, fought hard against yeah. the changes that were going to happen. You know, there's the fact that people aren't allowed to smoke in planes anymore, or in restaurants, or healthcare, or schools. That's because the engineers. And the industrial hygienists and the medical community got together and said, this is wrong. Yeah, This has to stop. Well, anybody that had a voice, in particular ASHRAE, because they're one of the leading organizations, I mean, the lawsuits that ASHRAE had to face over that were huge. But again, you have to stand up for what's right and, and you're the aggregate in terms of housing, for example, or building safety, that has to come from society in an aggregated way. And 
you're right, Adam. It's the Gandhi approach, oh, or or the or as as uh, Matthew said, you know, the Ralph Nader's, the quality control. That's also a way of doing. Ralph it. Nader is a great example for that. That's the world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Matthew, we're coming up in the end. You might be the Dosecki's guy for engineers, the most interesting engineer in the world. I think you might be. I have a question for Matthew. Yeah, we finished with is, one quick question each, right? So you go first, Robert. Go. So we had Professor Roland Clifton from Oxford University. He's a very interesting gentleman. If you haven't heard the podcast, it's worth listening to him. We have actually had him on twice. We had him on with Bill Bonfliff, Shelley Miller, who, oh, Hema Murdy, and yes. uh, Roland Clifton. There was the four, the four of them, and it was a great interview. Roland uh, did a course on ethics and engineering. And one of his studies had to do what would have been like to be an engineer under the rule of Adolf Hitler. So my question is to you, you and Roland end up on a university somewhere in the world and Roland says, I'm retiring. I can no longer do my ethics course. And so I want you to do it, Matthew. And I want you to talk about being an engineer under Adolf Hitler. What's your message to the students? Oh, no pressure. Buy lots of starch, <laughs> starch for your shirts. <laughs> Nobody yeah. had creases like the Nazis. They were the best dressed villains in the world, right? Wow. It actually wouldn't be much different than what I say now, which is, I mean, that, that puts a different spin on it because so notable character for me, one of the people I'd say is sort of a, a heroic role model that I've looked to more than once is uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor and a university professor in Germany, started the Second World War. He started the underground Lutheran seminary to train pastors after the Lutheran church backed the Nazis. So that power and control, right? The Lutheran church leadership said, hey, we better get on board with these guys or we're all going to be dead. So they supported it. So now you've got religious endorsement of genocide, which happens all the time, of course. It's not like that's unusual. And then Bonhoeffer wrote a lot about community and leadership and morals. And he was actually one of the participants in one of the plots to assassinate Hitler, which is fascinating. So as an avowed pacifist, right, a person who believes in nonviolence, he said he reached a point where he realized he had no other option, but he had to go down this road, even though he considered it, I don't know if he uses the word evil, but he considered it to be an evil act. But he knew, he said, I have no other choice at this point. He ends up imprisoned and the SS execute him like on the last day before the war ends. Oh. And, he, and he's left this body of work about what it means to be in community and what it means to be an ethical leader. And I mean, that's what I would say is that you like the reason Adolf Eichmann was so successful in implementing the final solution, right, was because he had cores of very, very skilled engineers who were designing those logistics systems to be crass, the processing systems in order to murder a whole bunch of people and dispose of the bodies. Like that's our profession there as well. And unfortunately, engineering has been complicit in lots of stuff, right? When I talk about reconciliation and engineering, one of the realities in in colonial societies is that engineering has always been the engine of colonialism. The railway wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the railway engineers that were supporting the work to push the railway across Canada, which went along with forced starvation and disease and everything else that happened to the First Nations. So that would be my comment to an engineer working for the Nazis is that you need to be prepared to step aside and set up an underground engineering group that's going to do the contrary resistance work that's going to try and bring some balance back, accepting that you might end up being, being executed or, uh, or killed out of it. 
And I say that realizing that I understand, I know that this is not something that 100% of the population is ever going to do. It's probably, you know, mm. the people that are willing to take courageous stance that risk their life are probably 99th percentilers, maybe 20%, maybe 5%. But it's, it's the group of people, you know, that are willing to end up on the cover of time as the Enron whistleblower, for example. And almost always they have unhappy lives afterwards because whistleblowers rarely end up getting the OBE and whistleblowers always get the bullet in the head eventually. Yeah. So you talked earlier, Robert, about uh, establishing that framework of principles and being unwilling to compromise on it. You know, for me, what I always say when I talk about ethics is you need to understand where your line in the sand is Mm -hmm. and then you need to refuse to cross it. And the reason I do that isn't because my professional ethics requires it. It's because I need to get up every morning and look at myself in the mirror and say, I've done the absolute best I can to make the world a better place in the last 24 hours. And if I can't say that to myself, it means I need to go back and fix the damage that I've done. So people like Bonhoeffer, you need those courageous individuals who are going to start the contrary movements to resist. And we see it in the, I mean, we've seen it in the pandemic as well, right? There's large cohorts of engineers that are completely complicit. That's why a lot of the work around the school boards has been so, so challenging because there are there are engineers who say things like, I think ASHRAE is just there to promote income for the, the filter industry. I'm going to tell ASHRAE that. <laughs> That'd be the one time you'll see yeah, ASHRAE. Yeah, there was, there's, there was many comments that were, that were like that. And, yeah, uh, there's, there's, we got a podcast on that from Amanda Ho. Right? Yeah. ASHRAE approved the school design. But um, you, you know what, yeah. Matthew, you're absolutely right there. Ethics is so important and so little thought about, right? Because you have to know who you are and you only know who you are when you're faced with that big decision. You think you're all that, but when you're faced with that decision, can I kill someone? Can I do this? Can I do that? It's like the soldier, right? You go into a soldier, but at some point you might be faced with that decision, right? And that's when you know. You never know till that comes. Ethics is the same, right? You know, Bonhoeffer, yeah, put it all on the line. A man of God, right? Boom, gone. Yeah. Yeah. And the way I've been talking about ethics in the last few years is I am fascinated with complex system failures because it comes out of investigating aircraft accidents and complex accidents, the way complex systems tend to degrade and slide into failure modes that are unexpected and surprising. You can't predict the failure mode of a complex system because it's complex. That's one of the defining characteristics of it. chaos theory based ultimately, right? Yeah. One of the things I realized, I have a friend who works in uh, oil and gas here in Alberta, asked me if I'd do a a, a big like a, a seven hour sort of ethics module for his engineers and he he challenged me to put it together and I started to put it together and I'd been reading a bunch of complex systems theory at the time and it clicked for me that ethical system failures fail the same way as complex technical systems which is why you need to build resilience into the system in advance of the failure mode occurring because you can't mm. anticipate the failure mode so you build resilience in so when the failure happens the system can handle it gracefully it's the exact same thing with us and ethics. You know, you need to build that ethical resilience in. And part of that resilience is exactly what you both are talking about. It's the, I'm going to reinforce where my line in the sand is, where my principles stop. Because if I don't reinforce it, that line is going to shift. It's the same as a complex system operating point, that normalization of deviance that uh, Diane Vaughn talked about with Challenger. You know, as you shift your operating point, the acceptable behavior boundary shifts as well on the ethics side. And before you know it, you're taking kickbacks at your home address because that's what everybody's doing. Yeah, and um, it creeps. It's a creep, right? It's not a big thing. It's a creep. You just creep yeah. along. And before you know it, you're not the person you thought you are. Which is why you need to sort it out in advance because yes. like a complex technical system, 
you don't realize you're in a failure mode until you're already in failure mode. And you're like, oh my God, why am I getting kickback checks at my home address? Like, how yeah, did that I think happen? It's, you've got to announce it. You've got to state it, right? And you've got to examine that. God, that's, a, that's great. I, God, I love this subject. So I'm going to ask you a slightly lighter question. <laughs> but you might want to move on to Mussolini or Polkot or something you know, for the next. So my question is, pretend that there's an 18-year-old boy or girl that just graduating high school and they're contemplating a career. What would your advice be to them? Yeah, I won't say the uh, one that's all, all the posters, follow your dreams, because I'm not sure. No, that is path. utter BS, by the way. <laughs> I've never told you that as a liar. That's not a path to happiness. No. I think like when I talk to high school students who are interested in engineering, figure out what it is that they find interesting and engaging. Because I think the, I remember reading, it was like over a decade ago, there was this theory in self-help going around that you're supposed to hate your job because you, the only reason you work is to get money so you can do fun stuff. So you need to stop talking about finding a job you love and just find one you can tolerate to make enough money to survive. I thought, wow. A bit nihilistic. Yeah, because I've, I mean, it's not like I've always loved my job, but I've always enjoyed what I'm doing because there's lots of challenges and lots of things to dig into and lots of ethical stuff to get into. So when people are interested in engineering, I, I try to say to them, well, what, like, what actually do you like about the world? Like, what do you like doing? And then to talk to them about what it is that they do to see if they can find the, the links there. I'm also a big fan of, we had a long chat with my daughter about going into trades, into apprenticeship, because you know, there's, I've considered becoming an electrician more than once in my life because I love, I love wiring. I just I really enjoy putting morettes on things. Yeah. So to find something that's going to keep you engaged. And really, it's, if, I, if it was a vocational question, I would take it back to asking, like, where is it that you think you're most called to make a difference in the world? Because yeah. that's, you know, this theory of community, like we've seen with the air advocacy community, which has been so, it's the only thing that's kept me going for the last three years has been this community of like-minded people, you know, some of whom I don't get along with that well because they're they can be abrasive and have opinions I don't like. But we've come together because we're focused on this idea that we have an obligation to make life better for more people than just our small group. To talk to people about where is it that you're going to find that, and I'm also I'm not a huge fan of university education necessarily anymore because I think it's certainly got a place. Right, that, so I'm um, in on that. <laughs> Yeah, it certainly has a place because we need, especially in the professions, but the, you know, the adage that we've had for a while in first world cultures about you need to get a university degree if you're nothing. If you want to go and study like English literature for four years, because that's really gets you going. I know when I've been hiring people, I'm less concerned about where they went to school and what they studied uh, and more concerned about who they are as a person and how well they can think through things. Like the forensic, this is funny, the forensic firm I worked for, it was called Sintra. They they were just bought out last year by CEP. I think they are their national firm. The head of their property group who I worked for, I was in his office talking to him one day and he had this big box of, of junk, it looked like, on the corner of his desk. And I said, what's this? Because there was an old Bellows camera folded up on top of it. And I picked it up and I unfolded it because I love Bellows cameras. And he said, oh, okay, so you know how practical forensics work is, right? said we would hire these investigators right out of school who had, would have no idea about how to investigate a fire scene because they don't have any practical knowledge to apply their technical knowledge. He said, so when I do interviews of engineers now, I've got this box of really complicated gadgets and I give them one and say, I'm going to give you 10 minutes, figure out how it works, figure out how to take it apart. And when I come back, you need to explain it to me. So he'd give them oh, like this, this old bellows camera. 
and walk out of the office and come back in 10 minutes. And he'd say some of them would be still sitting there with it and saying, I've gotten, I don't even know how to open it. And then others would be like, oh yeah, it's an old bellows camera. Look, and this is how you open up this is where the film goes. This is the lens and, and guess which group he would hire. Yeah. That's um, hilarious. I love that. Yeah. And then he said, and I'm not going to hire any more engineers that didn't grow up on farms because we can't find engineers that understand how to use common hand tools like saws and hammers and screwdrivers. And I'm like, what? We've had that conversation so many times, Matthew, Adam and I, right? That's great. Yeah. I love that. I took it for granted when I was doing my military training because I spent my summers on the flight line as a working as, as a shadow to technicians, right? So we would do OJT, we'd go to a flying unit, they'd put coveralls on us, they'd give us a speeder and put us out on the flight line doing grunt work and learning how to use hand tools with people who are experts in it. I mean... Some, I remember an oil change on a Dakota where one of them dropped the wrench into the oil sump, which was like this deep of noxious oil out of the yeah. radial engine. And they both looked at me and laughed and said, aren't you going to get the wrench trainee? So, you know, into the, <laughs> into the pit to get the, of the oil. But that I, I didn't realize what a gift that was, the, those summers of just working, putting gas in airplanes and working with yeah. hand tools. We've gone long, but I'm no knowledge of that. This has been a great interview. So listen, man. Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed that conversation because it's not yeah, often thanks, yes. you get that zoom out on the big picture, the interdisciplinary thing, the ethics, the core values, how it links in with previous people like Rafe Noda. People need to make these connections because people don't. You get stuck in your like on your desk, right? So yeah, this has been fantastic, man. Really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, you are the most interesting engineer in the world. I'm I'm going with that. <laughs> I'll get you. We'll get you a trophy. <laughs> I, I, I crest for my I crest for my jacket. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thank, thank you, you so much to both of you. Up to your LinkedIn profile picture, by the way. <laughs> awesome, Ed. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Randy. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you passionate about the built environment? Do you want to learn from the industry's most inspiring, intelligent, and accomplished professionals? then the companion to this podcast, Wisdom of the Property Crowd, is just the book for you. From Edifice Complex Podcast Interviews, this book distills the critical thinking, insight, and ideas of some of the property industry's most accomplished and respected practitioners. Each chapter is a synopsis of an hour-plus interview, capturing the takeaways and insights, including diagrams and images, to help explain concepts and ideas. There's also a brief bio about the interviewee and a QR code linked to the podcast episode for those that want to explore further. These are the mentors you wish you had in college. Wisdom of the Property Crowd by Adam Muggleton. Available on Amazon worldwide. And now, back to the show. Probably one of the most interesting individuals we've had on the podcast. Yeah. I mean, they're all, I mean, I've said this before, we're, they're all interesting. We've had some great, great guests on. What Matthew brings to the table i mean he's a deep thinker right and oh, yeah you just i mean if you read his resume and that tells a story you look at his occupations over the years and that tells a story but if you're really good at reading between the lines and someone's resume and their and their occupation you begin to see the complexity of and his his level of knowledge is incredible i mean you know you don't get into forensics unless you know something about how things break or how you design things. Interesting hearing talk about failure analysis because I, I start. I one of the, the courses I took in my degree was uh, systems analysis. So we did yeah. soft systems failure, hard systems, you know, and 
that's exactly what he was talking about. You know, like uh, complex systems and then chaos theory comes up and just breaks them. You know, that's a level of thinking that is beyond a traditional engineering degree. Yeah. When I was doing my degree and I, they, I did systems, I thought well, this would be interesting. I did it because I thought it'd be an easy pass. Turns out, no. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was also great because I was thinking, how is this applicable to me? But then you think, like, systems are engineered, like, certainly in built build environment, like, cooling system, heating system. That's it. These systems are complex. There's single points of failure. There's vulnerability. There's resilience issues. This is all, there's failure in them, right? So there's yeah. failure analysis. Yeah. I, I actually, when I yeah. think about it, use that framework a lot when I'm looking yeah. at drawings of that, right? Where's the failure here? Where's the problem? That's what you're looking for, right? Yeah, exactly. He talked about science, science not being settled and how some people you know, the science is settled, right? And so they move on, but it's I not get so settled. triggered when I hear that. Yeah, it's not settled. And that's what science is about. It never gets settled. If science is settled, humanity is over, pretty much. Yeah. Do you know what was great what when you talking about Bonhoeffer, the guy they executed just before the war? You know, while well, they got rid of him, right? He knew too much. Yeah. But that whole talk about, like, who are you? What is your line? I strongly advise everyone, no matter how young you are, work that out. What are your two or three core values? What do you stand for? Where's your line? And then revisit that frequently. Yeah, that's good advice, Adam. I mean, there's the sooner you discover what that is, that is a fundamental building block of your personal characteristics. Yeah. That is, those are the blocks that you will never remove unless somebody puts a bomb on you. Like, you know, those are the things that they're non-negotiable. This is where, this is who I am. This is what I stand on. And I am willing to, and well, in the military, live and die on it. Or people that have those strong beliefs that are willing to die for it, you know. Engineers are the same way. You're going to get faced with challenges. There are going to be ethical challenges. There'll be political challenges. There'll be legal challenges. You're going to you're going to face them. And your advice, Adam, about discovering what what's negotiable and what isn't early on that's, that's uh, good, actually just made the connection. I think on why he came across so well and why he's been so successful is I work in the built environment. You know, if I f up. Someone gets cold, someone gets hot, no one dies. It's a low consequence environment, right? Really. Worst thing that happens to me is I get sued, right? I lose money. Whereas in the environment he comes from, military, like failure analysis, like sorting out ejection seats in jets, all that easy stuff, right? That's a high consequence environment. Yeah. So the level of rigor and discipline that you have to bring, you can't be, you know, you can't be joking about it like we do. You know what I mean? Someone got cold. Oh, you know, it's like it, yeah. for him it would be someone jumped out of a plane and died. Oops. <laughs> so it's yeah, a that's, different mindset, right? Well, the what 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 bears on one's conscience as a result of the failure yeah. is completely different. Someone loses a life because of your uh, actions or inactions. How'd you get it's over? It's a little that? bit different. Well, that's the thing. Some people yeah. don't. Yeah. You know, you know, that's, yeah, that's the tough. He made us some statements about building resilience before failure. And I thought that was, that was also really good words of advice that, you know, you, and it, it kind of aligns with what you're saying, like understand who you are as a person, what is, yeah. what's negotiable, what's not negotiable. And so that when 
you're faced with those decisions, you've built in the decision-making process ahead of time so that there isn't a failure. And he was, again, like, you know, observing that in these complex systems is that failure doesn't happen because, you know, in in this grand event, it's little events failing almost where you're, they're imperceptible. There's unconscious things that go on and then they start to accumulate and the snowball builds and then all of a sudden you have massive failure. And that could be anything from material. Someone bought the wrong materials, right? It'd be all or, right because, you know, it's, it's just a small part in a big thing, you know. Yeah, and it's that complacency with the minute on the surface might seem like it has no consequence, but when that happens enough or that one decision, the failure of that one decision works its way through the complex system that all of a sudden you have massive failure. Yeah, going on with, like, you know, I've got this theory about, you know, how did Nazi Germany happen? How did, how were so many people complicit in killing so many, like genocide, right? Of, of six, six million Jews, right? So the answer is bureaucracy. This is the evil of bureaucracy, right? Mm. So no one thought they were a bad person, right? I'm a, the genius of German bureaucracy was this. They broke everything down into a million little steps. So people could say, I'm not killing anyone. I've just checked the ticket for the person getting on the train. I'm a good person. Yeah. I'm not a bad person. I drive trains. I don't know what's in my freaking train, right? This is the evil and banality of huge bureaucracy. Yeah. It can get normal, weak people to do horrendous stuff. That's why I'm always very leery of big bureaucracies and big state things because take the pandemic, right? Everybody you interacted with and got up, you were all getting upset about with, and I was getting upset about, all thought they were doing the good, best thing possible. Yeah. No one thought they were a bad person, right? Based on what, I don't know. But, you know, this is why you've got to know who you are. You've got to check yourself, look for them little slips, and be aware that it's, it's like the old joke, right? Before D-Day, the French resistance was this big. After D-Day, everyone was in the French resistance, right? Well, the problem with a lot of that, too, is that these individuals become detached from the consequence, and they are very good at rationalizing their actions. And a good a good example is that when they could say, well, you know what, this isn't a problem, only 3% of the people died. Well, for the person that died, it was 100%. Yeah. Right? And so they become detached from the consequence. They, You know, the statistics for them are inconsequential, except for the person that died. Obviously, it was a huge consequence. And you can't bring that person back because of the other person's, I don't know, detachment from from their actions. And yeah, because that's like the bureaucracy thing, right? You're being disconnected from the ultimate consequence. You so are. you don't feel you're a bad person. Yeah. Right? And you're not thinking. You're trying not to think past your part in it. Heavy, heavy stuff, right? I feel like this well, is a drink. It was, well, it is heavy stuff. He said something, and I got to tell you, if I was still hiring people for engineering, that's brilliant. You put out a box of uh, mechanical electromechanical devices on a table and give something to the young engineer that just gets out of school and say, okay, you take this thing apart, figure yeah. out how it works, put it back together again. I'm going to come back in 10, 15 minutes and we're going to chat about it. And then he comes back and some people have taken it apart. They know it inside and out. <laughs> Other people, it's like, I don't know what to do with it. And he, and he's right. I mean, and he, and he also made a comment Sort of like a, you know, like a, a footnote in terms of you would never hire an engineer that didn't have any farming backup. He is right on that. Yeah. When you're a kid on the farm, by the time you're 16 or 17, 
You know how to do an oil change on a combine. You know how to fix belts and pulleys and springs. Yep. You know how to take, you know, take things apart, put them back together. And you understand consequences. You understand efficiency. You understand processes, production. Like you just, there's just nothing by the time that you're 16 that you don't, you've, you've already got a good start on the world of engineering. You may be a farmer, but you're, you're got the brain. Yeah, but you're hands on, right? So that's the applied hands on. Yep. This is the other thing about engineering, which I don't think is discussed much in universities. Yes, you need the theory, 100%. But you also need to understand the application of it, right? Yeah. And that's, that's those things, you need both, right? Yeah. You've got to add both. And that I guess that's what licensing boards look for, right? That academic and then the experience, then you get your license. I guess that's what it's about. But, you know, yeah, it's really, I don't think the... Applied stuff gets the value and attention that it needs by society, right? It's not valued overtly the way, say, a four-year degree is. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, we're getting very philosophical in our old age. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've had, again, going back to if, if you're a first-time listener to the podcast, Adam started this a long time ago to create mentorship, you know, hmm. We have so many people that are in school, engineering colleges, and there's really nobody out there to, t to look up to as a hero where there is in other professions, right? And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I jumped on board is because I think that's a, it's an admirable thing. And I think, Adam, over the last five years, now going on, I think our sixth year coming up, yeah. there are so many good episodes, so many of our wrap-ups with such wisdom. This episode with Matthew, you know, ranks up there with the top. Um, oh, yeah, this has been listen. deep. I've been quite affected by speaking to him, actually. So, again, if you're a first-time listener, there's lots more like this conversation. If you're a parent of a student in a STEM program, I mean, all of the episodes, there are people who share in their wisdom that otherwise you would never get. And I would encourage you to, to listen to them and tell your friends and tell your family and your other, other students. Because i got to tell you, if I was in school... Uh, going back, and this was available, I would be listening to those episodes. Right. Smart Damn people. Right, yeah. Hey, by the way, before we wind up, we're I, again, you got a couple of books out. <laughs> yeah. We keep forgetting to talk about it. I know we're going to put them in. Hey, I should trouble. do. A, I should do a, a pluggable advert for my books. I guess on my you, podcast. <laughs> you should absolutely. You should. I mean, it's like you climb the mountain, plant your flag. You know, and uh, I've I've got both copies. Thank you very much for that. And like I said, I. The, the one, and I'm not a practicing in engineer anymore, but I keep that one. And when I go to do projects here yeah. with our stuff that we're here actually today doing stuff, I, you know, for notes, right? Taking yeah. notes. And the other one, which was, you know, uh, just a collective. And I don't know how you did that. That would have been really hard. So what Adam did, for those who are listening, he's got a book there. He, he selected a number of uh, of our previous guests and just sort of took the highlights of what was talked about and the takeaways. And I don't know how you picked those because we had so many good guests. Well, it, was and hard. Guessing, it was hard to get it down to 10 because my editors have said, like, I just need this number, no more. And I had to like, it's like killing babies. They say, call it killing your babies, right? So you yeah. have to go, oh, I've got to pick. <laughs> Sophie's choice, right? Someone's got to stay, someone's got to go. It was. So that's going to be volume number one. You got to do yeah. a volume two, three, four, whatever Yeah, I will, and, actually. Because there's, there's, I mean, uh, this episode yeah. would be a candidate, 100%. To yeah. go in a book, Ben. Yeah, people need to yeah. know more, hear yeah. more from Matthew, 100%. Anyway, yeah, so there's more to come. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right, That's I'll good. get on that. Again, I have, uh, I get some pluggables for my pluggables. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, All right Adam. Man.
Always a pleasure. See you in the next one. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.